Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. You're listening to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. And today we've got some, um, I guess we could put it uh, this way. It's Japanese showtime. So <laughs> being a colonial power, of course, requires occasionally putting on a good show, right? For mm -hmm. maintaining that prestige. And it's for both the, the colonized and for the home population to see that they're you know, doing a good job and that everything's uh, running smoothly mm -hmm. and ruling a foreign people does carry an inherent responsibility. You're supposed to be bringing progress and order, right? You mm -hmm. gotta justify it. So yeah. Japan, as Taiwan's colonial master at that time, was keen to show the world that it had become a major power. It was ready to take its place with the other colonial powers mm -hmm. and to show how awesome they were. They yeah. wanted to point to Formosa, their first colony mm -hmm. acquired in 1895 and say, look, look at this beautiful success. Yeah. So John, you told me that a good way of understanding this story is to look at the Japan-British exhibition of 1910. Yes, uh, strange for us today, but exhibitions in particular, world fairs, were once big events. Right. Immensely popular. Enormous effort went into showcasing a, a country's achievements and uh, also companies, private companies. Right. The Eiffel Tower would be a great example. Yeah. Built for the... Uh, 1889 World Fair held mm. in Paris, of course, the highest man-made structure at the time. They were going to take it down uh, after the fair, but it ended up being popular, so it's still there. But anyway, from the name, the Japan-British Exhibition, we can guess doesn't really sound like a world fair. No, no. It's mostly a Japanese event, uh, mm. their largest ever overseas presence by far. Britain provided uh, relatively few uh, exhibits, but the site uh, is in London, and they had hosted exhibitions there the previous years. The hosts could use the buildings then that were set up for these. Yep. Uh, but the Japanese uh, went to great expense, bringing in Japanese gardens, and temples, various structures. Mm. It was held from mid-May to late October in 1910. That's so nearly five months. The driving force for the Japanese was to improve their image and also promote trade, particularly manufactured goods, and to advertise their new status as a great power. I was just going to comment about the price tag, and I was going to assume that the British didn't pick up most of that and that it wasn't probably <laughs> the Japanese that were uh, piling money into this. So uh, what was the Taiwan or the Formosa connection there? Uh, numerous exhibits on Taiwan including displays of steamships, uh, railways, the camphor industry, hospitals, uh, a model of Kaohsiung Harbor. Mm. And there were two tea houses at the uh, exhibition, one for Japanese tea and one for oolong tea. Mm. So that would be, of course, oolong tea from Taiwan. And mm -hmm. how did that go down? Uh, we're we're yeah. talking about Brit <laughs> yeah. British people drinking Taiwan oolong tea. How, how did that work out? Well, there were plenty of visitors to the Formosan Tea House, uh, 
quarter of a million people in total. The Brits, however, didn't have a taste for, mm. for oolong tea. Uh, mm. They preferred it mixed with uh, some Indian black tea. Okay. Yeah. Not surprising, I guess. And then there was a Formosan village consisting of some traditional native huts stocked with living exhibits. Mm. 24 Aborigines who uh, did dances and uh, demonstrated some traditional crafts or just sat around on display. <laughs> okay. So let me let me just get this straight. There was 24 Aboriginal people from Taiwan mm -hmm. yep. in these fake villages created for this exhibit. And in some ways they were like a zoo show of, yeah. uh, of Formosan Taiwan. But that's a little a little counterintuitive. I mean, if you're mm. trying to promote modern Japan, bringing civilization to uh, Formosa and blah, 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 yeah, this prestige, yeah. it's odd, isn't it? Well, you're, you're echoing concerns the Japanese officials had at the time okay. and uh, Japanese citizens resident in Taiwan at the time. The Formosan village was a British uh, idea. Hmm. That, uh, that and they also wanted an Ainu hamlet. So they wanted something more exotic. The Ainu are yeah, indigenous yeah. people from the northeast Japanese island of Hokkaido uh, a long time ago. It wasn't Japanese at all. And mm, the Ainu yeah. today are much diminished and uh, unfortunately have lost most of their uh, culture and stuff. They speak Japanese. But back in the day, the Ainu were a totally different people. Mm. And th there was a traditional Japanese village too, uh, oh, which okay. had uh, traditional rural uh, houses and some peasants giving demonstrations. <laughs> okay. Peasants. All right. Yeah. Well, the people manning these, these uh, areas were uh, for the educated Japanese elite too low class. They thought these peasants were creating a bad impression. Yeah, I can imagine them thinking that this is not quite what we're trying to display. Yeah. So in general, how popular was this fair with fair goers? Well, the British organizer was right uh, in, in terms of wanting these uh, villages. The Japanese British ex exhibition was a great success. It got huge numbers of visitors. Oddly enough, the so-called Ainu village, it was just 10 people, three huts. The Ainu village was more popular than the uh, Formosan village. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as I noted earlier, the term zoo comes to mind. Um, were there any concerns about the morality of exhibiting live humans? Yes, uh, there's criticism uh, from both British and uh, Japanese, uh, accusations of uh, exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, when you think back at that time, having subjects from colonial powers on display wasn't all that unusual. No, uh, indeed, quite common. Uh, the next year at, at the same venue in London, uh, there was a Maori village from uh, my uh, country of New Zealand. Uh, right. And it was one of the, the popular uh, attractions there. I think the first Taiwanese Aborigines to be on display overseas was uh, in uh, Osaka, Japan, or about 1903, I think. So what is known about these Aboriginal people who were at the exhibition? There were 24 of them. Yeah, they, they were all Paiwan, most from the Hengchun Peninsula. There were uh, a couple of men who were identified as chiefs, just three women, and uh, two Japanese policemen uh, accompanied them. So from Hengchun, that would be uh, today the uh, the place where we go to the beach very often, Kending area. So how were yep. how were they selected? Were they were they just drafted, or how did that work? I don't know, but I, I assume 
assume it was voluntary and uh, not uh, not coerced. Why would you assume that? Well, the colonial authorities wouldn't want uh, embarrassing incidents, you know, people running away, uh, uh-huh. they want volunteers. Also, the payment was very generous, a yen a day. Okay. And that includes uh, the time spent traveling there and back. Oh. This equated to about three times as much as what a, an elementary school teacher was earning. That is not bad. Not so- bad. And on, on top of that, they, they've got presents. Uh, people would give them money and they could make money from uh, selling personalized postcards. And they got paid weekly in advance. This was all stipulated in a contract. And there are records that the, the members saved between 200 to 500 yen. That's equivalent to you know many years of savings. Wow. So yeah, 200 to 500 yen back then was a lot of money. And I'm interested, I'm interested to know how, how you know all of these stories. Uh, time travel. Yeah. Okay. I read a couple of books on the subject. Special shout out to Lost Histories, Recovering the Lives of Japan's Colonial Peoples by Kirsten Ziemek. It's amazing the books that are out there on subjects that you would uh, never imagine. It's just, yeah, there's there's so many cool yeah. books uh, connected to Taiwan. You list about 100 of the English language ones in your book. I, called... I could have done 300. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Your book is called Taiwan in 100 Books, but you could have done 300. Wow. Yeah. So back to the Paiwan people. Um, this is pre-jetliner travel. It, <laughs> it must have been a rather amazing trip for them. Nonetheless, they get to go to the other side of the world quite literally. Yeah, it was overwhelming for them at first. Um, the Paiwan group arrived in London mid-April. Uh, they'd suffered from seasickness on the long journey, and um, they were already homesick when they arrived. <laughs> okay, so they get their land legs and they start to settle in. No, no, uh, they um, they wanted to return to Taiwan. They were unhappy with the condition. <laughs> the accommodation uh, they slept in was not up to uh, the contract standard. The huts huts were too cold at night. It's they cold. Cooped up. It's, well, it's mid-April. Can't be that bad. Um, they, they felt cooped up. You know, they're stuck at exhibition grounds. They're bored. Um, okay. Yeah, they want to go back. They're so unhappy. Uh, someone, a director, makes a phone call back to Taiwan, asking about the possibility of uh, of them going back. And they were told, uh, to paraphrase, "You're supposed to be brave warriors. You know, headhunting badasses, not bedwetting crybabies. So if you come back, you'll be bringing shame on yourself and us." You know? <laughs> okay, and. And I, I, you you think London is uh, tolerable in April, but if you've lived your entire life in southern, yeah. very yeah. southern Taiwan, which like even in yeah. September, October is still 35 degrees in the in the noontime, London is not a, a pleasant climate for, yeah, I, I get it. I'm, I'm on their side on this one. So yeah. did, how did they take the response to toughen up and do your job? Sullenly, <laughs> but the mood of the group improved when the weather got warmer. See, there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And uh, as their English got better. They could speak English? They learned it while they were there. Wow. And they did this by themselves, you know, memorizing English phrases, trying the phrases out on visitors. Uh, they made great progress and it became a point of pride. I wonder if they went all the way with like Cockney accents with the, you know, huh? <laughs> so the Ainu village was more popular, you said, but 
Mm-hmm. Did they get some popularity going? Did the the ball get rolling for the Formosan Aboriginal village replica? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. The Ainus were uh, more romantic at that time. They're sort of like seen as a dying people. Okay. Um, but maybe the Formosan Aborigines, you'd expect their reputation as bloodthirsty headhunters. Right. Would attract, but uh, it seemed to put people off. <laughs> um, or maybe Formosa was just not as interesting as well known as Japan. Now, the, the Paiwan, they, uh, the Paiwan, they had a bit of fun with their image as these savages. They would play it up too, you know, when food was not to their liking or the, the food was late being served, they would draw their uh, big knives uh, or take their spears and uh, make a scene. That's know? great. That's wonderful. Mm. Kind of turning the tables a little bit there. Yeah. Okay. So for people who aren't so clear mm. on the different Aboriginal groups, the Paiwan yeah. are a lowland indigenous people. And yeah. because they've been so close to Han Chinese for a very long time, they a lot of influence from China, and they're not from high mountains. Indeed, but 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 they've uh, as a group they've got pretty good savage credentials. So you've been to Mudan, right? Mudan, yes, it's on the uh, east coast side of Pingdong. It's not a very developed area, and there's just this one little town there called Mudan. Yes, indeed, I've been there, and it's famous for the Mudan incident of 1871 when the Okinawan, or more accurately, the Ryukan seafarers or sailors, they shipwrecked right on the southeast yep. coast there. And sadly, 54 of them got inland and then got killed. Yeah, I, I remember you telling me that the, the Mudan incident, which is the name for this uh, this uh, mass killing of the Ryukans, that it was not Mudan village, but another one. It's true. I was chatting with a couple of people one time when I was down in the greater Kending area, and I brought up the Mudan incident and, and how I was researching it. And somebody said, well, actually, it's not really the, our village Mudan. Yeah. It's just because we happen to have the largest village in the neighborhood. But no, yeah, they were a little... Um, prickly about that. Okay, so the the killers came from uh, another place in the area, a village called Couscous, had about 250 inhabitants. Guess where most of the Paiwan and the London exhibition come from? I'm assuming Couscous. Yes, they're from Couscous. (laughs) So their uh, granddads had helped bring about the Japanese punitive expedition of 1874 and in turn, you know, led to, in large part, Japan's presence on the island. Yeah, there's a little bit of irony there. Okay. Okay. But these guys are are harmless, uh, aside from their weaponry. And they're friendly. If you say that they're learning English, and that means they're interacting with English visitors. Yes, uh, admirable. For me, this story is a great example of something that you you could dismiss quite easily as, you know, racist, this Mm. identity, that power dynamic, blah, blah. You know, but it's it's a very human story of people interacting with others, you know, one person at a time. And it's a great turnaround from them initially wanting to run back to Taiwan. Yeah, they would have fond memories looking back at their time in England. And they managed to get excursions out of the exhibition grounds around London. Uh, I think they had invitations to people's homes. Lots of great memories uh, riding the London Underground. Uh, Hmm. Probably the most striking thing they saw was above the uh, exhibition grounds, a box-like contraption in the sky, two men in the box. An airplane. Yeah. That would be something to tell stories of when you got back home. 
uh, you've got yeah. subway underground, you got planes flying in the air. You're you're going to be the the star of the campfire for quite a while. Yes, it's worth enduring a bit of cold, isn't it? Yeah. Them. Another highlight came for them in August. They met the king and queen. Oh, so this would be George the George the fifth, recently coronated grandpa of the current queen. They only spent about ten minutes at the Fumosan village talking to three Paiwan women, one of whom was very pregnant. <laughs> they, they brought a pregnant woman with them? Yeah. Wow. She, she gave birth the, the following month to a boy. In Taiwan or in, in London? In London. Wow. When did the group arrive back in Taiwan? January 1911, they came via Japan, the port of Kobe, and then nearby Osaka, where they were given a city tour. And in Taiwan, they were met by the governor general. Hmm. Right. So this is all ship travel. So yeah, they the steamships about six weeks from six uh, Japan weeks. to London at that time. Yeah. Was there any major follow up with these people? Did do we know anything about their yeah, their later I'm, years? I'm I'm afraid not, but 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 no. there is a, a nice story from uh, the next year, 1912. So a young English botanist by the name of William Price is in Taiwan collecting specimens, uh, and he sent back over a thousand, uh, many of them from an expedition to uh, Jade Mountain to Yushan. Okay. And, uh, he even got an orchid named after himself. Not bad. Mm. But, okay, he briefly visited the Formosan village in London in 1910. Now he was being invited by them to meet the Paiwan. Oh. Apparently, they wanted to show him some uh, return hospitality. Uh, you know, they were grateful for the kind treatment they'd received in England. I'm sure he got to sample some of the local rice wine. They bought him some uh, foreign beer. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, that's very kind of them, I have to say. And obviously, the Japanese would have seen this whole thing as good publicity. Yes. So they arranged a meeting uh, right. with uh, 10 of these uh, tribesmen. Price was greatly impressed by their English ability. Uh, he hadn't spoken to them at the uh, exhibition in London. Okay. So he, he's been traveling in Taiwan for months and seldom encountered Japanese who spoke English as well. And he's also impressed by their general bearing and good manners. But uh, yeah, they're at dinner. He's sitting here with some Japanese, a couple of policemen, his research assistant, a local schoolmaster, and the 10 Paiwan. But it's kind of embarrassing embarrassing because the this, this uh, Japanese elite, they're speaking really bad broken English and they can't keep up. They're struggling <laughs> to uh, to stay in the conversation. The Paiwan are speaking English uh, very well. Um, Im impressive. They, they must have, uh, when they returned, they must have like gotten some books and continued reading and uh, yeah. Yeah. Impressive. Right. So going back to the subject of exhibitions, these were mm -hmm. periodically held also on Taiwan. I recall not yeah. personally recall, but I recall reading of one back in 1935, a rather large yeah. one. And the name of that one was the Taiwan Exhibition in Commemoration of the First 40 Years of Colonial Rule. And it ran for 50 days. And there was an estimated 1 million people that attended that. 1 million. Yeah. It's, it's a huge number, isn't it? Massive. I mean, the, pop the population uh, of Taiwan at the time was, was about 5 million. And, uh, you know, there would be a few visitors from Japan, even Korea, but still the great majority were Taiwan. Taiwanese. So the number represents about 20% of the island's population. Yeah. yeah. And there were four different places in Taipei where this took place. Today, uh, it's called Ximanding, the area around the 228 Memorial Park. Over up in the north, the Beitou Hot Springs area. Mm -hmm. And then there's Da Daochen, the home to Taipei's oldest street, the Dihua Street. Yeah. And apart from displays from Taiwan at this exhibition, there were also exhibits from Japan, Korea, and Manchuria. I've seen pictures of the uh, exposition. Um, and it was a forward celebration of development, the glories 
of empire. And to be fair, you know, 1935 is roughly around that area is arguably the the pinnacle of Japanese rule because it's before all that nasty military mm -hmm. excessiveness got out of hand. Yeah. For me, the, the high point of colonial rule would be uh, the 1920s, end of the 20s. The great gains had been made in the first three decades. The 30s, you see uh, the military assert control of Japan's government. On Taiwan, there's more economic exploitation. You, you can see it in the heights of the people. Taiwanese got taller, got much taller through to about 1930, but afterwards, no, they stalled out. Ah, so for a year of peak colonial Taiwan, uh, seeing as we're talking about putting on a show, how about uh, 1923, the year of the visit of Japan's crown prince. That would mean the heir to the throne of the empire. Okay, I, I know the background, but not that much about the details of his trip. It wasn't the first visit uh, of a royal, but yeah, wow, this time was especially uh, lavish. It was a massive show, um, or uh, let, let's say a showa. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, a nice niche history pun there. So the, the crown prince is the future emperor Hirohito, the wartime emperor. Mm -hmm. And he rules afterwards until his death in 1989, a very, very long reign. Yeah. So his reign began in uh, 1926 after the death of his 47-year-old father. The era uh, was called Showa. <laughs> So uh, he's known as the Showa Emperor. So when he visited Taiwan, he was Prince Regent. Okay, so you got rid of your king back in the 1700s. Uh, well, uh, yes. You and your fellow American revolutionaries. You might not be familiar with Regent. So as Regent, that means he's actually acting as the de facto ruler. His father was uh, in poor health. Uh, not only poor physical health, he was yeah. reportedly also suffering from some mental illness that probably wasn't uh, talked about uh, very much in Japan or yeah. elsewhere. So Hirohito, in effect, was emperor from 1921, and that means he was just 20 years old. Mm -hmm. The crown prince arrived at the port of Geelong aboard a warship. That was April 16th, 1923. He was driven past cheering crowds and then got on a private train for the short trip to Taipei, or Taihoku as it was called then. The next thing on his itinerary was visiting the country's most important shrine, the Grand Taiwan Shrine, and that's shrine had been built to honor an imperial relative, a rather distant relative. Um, <laughs> he's got a name that is uh, incredibly hard to uh, pronounce. Hita Shirari Ka... It's impossible. Uh, yo okay. Yoshi... Yeah. Prince... Oh, let's just go with the initials, uh, KY. Yes. Okay, so this KY chap commanded the invasion force for the 1895 conquest of Taiwan. Right. After five months of battles and skirmishes, a lot of moving around and waiting, the conflict ended with the capitulation of Tainan. That's on October 21st. Prince... KY died a week later of malaria. Mm. And um, so October 28th, the date of his death would become a public holiday in colonial um, Taiwan. So when we say it wasn't the first visit from a royal, the first visit from a royal was the guy who conquered Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, gotcha. Okay. And and uh, that grand Shinto shrine in uh, Taipei was pretty much destroyed during the Second World War by American bombing. And a plane crash, a Japanese passenger plane crashed into 
into the shrine after taking off from nearby Songshan Airport. That's uh, in uh, October 44. Now, uh, yeah, I've been doing some reading for a, a podcast episode on Taiwan's aviation history. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I've heard about that. Crashed into the shrine after taking off from Taipei mm. Airport. Wow. So after the war, the shrine was demolished by the KMT, which is not surprising. And it, it used to be one of Taiwan's landmarks, but yeah. obviously it's a symbol of foreign rule and that didn't work out well for the, the nationalists who wanted to begin the uh, the new uh, regime. And a, a rather large edifice does exist on the site where it once stood, and that would be the Grand Hotel. The Grand Hotel, yeah. So mm. one landmark uh, replaced by another one. Uh, the, the old shrine looks gorgeous uh, in the pictures, at least, uh, I've, I've seen. Um, but, but I have to say, I'm a fan of the Grand Hotel. It divides opinion. I, I know it's over the top. It's uh, it's huge, classic Chinese-ness. It's uh, columns and ornate carved roof and such. But yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I like it. How about you? I, I'm with you on that. It's uh, a little bit overdone, overwrought or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's kind of pretty. So then from Taipei, our Prince Hirohito traveled in a luxury train south and came all the way down to where I live in Takao, which is current mm -hmm. modern day Kaohsiung. He arrived in Kaohsiung on April 21st. So the old station is still there, right? It is, yes, but it's not used for passenger traffic. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it, okay. but you, you can, you can, you can visit. So mm -hmm. he was driven through Kaohsiung city. Uh, he gets to this reception hall. It's a wooden pavilion-like building constructed for him. So yeah, he slept there for two nights during his stay in the city, but but he also got out, he visited uh, what was then called Minato Primary School and went over to Pingdong, which was called in Japanese Heito, and visited a massive sugar mill uh, that had been constructed there. Okay. Sounds like a, a successful trip, uh, at least no mishaps on it. Right. Yeah, that's the general take. He got a good reception, reportedly, from all the Japanese citizens on the island. And then when he got back home, uh, people who followed it in newspapers and saw a film of uh, his trip were also quite quite impressed. But the Taiwanese themselves uh, don't seem to have been, you know, completely awed or even all that interested. Yeah. Well, Hirohito doesn't exactly uh, cut a heroic figure. No, he? Um, no, he for doesn't. For a divine being, he looked rather <laughs> ordinary. Yes. Or, or ordinary, but smaller and more awkward. I mean, he, he's, he's one a... of these guys, uh, <laughs> you could put him on a white horse. It's just going to make him look worse, right? Yeah. So he spent a lot of time visiting Japanese shrines, and that wouldn't actually be uh, a great way of connecting with the local people because because they had not in any way embraced the religion of Shinto. Mm. And he also climbed up to the top of Takao Mountain. I've read that uh, Takao Mountain, you know, what uh, foreigners there call Monkey Mountain. Right. If you go back to the Dutch times, they called it Ape Hill. So yeah. It has pedigree. Okay. Yeah. So they changed the, the mountain's name to Longevity Mountain in Japanese, which is Shoshan um, Kotobukiyami Shoshan. Ah. April 23rd, 1923, Crown Prince Hirohito departs for the Pescadores or Penghu. Then he heads back to Taipei again, and then finally departs from Geelong on the 26th, bringing an 11-day visit to an end. Yeah, so a successful trip, but it, it turned out to be a rough year for the Crown Prince. Right, you're talking about uh, there was an assassination attempt on him that year, and also yeah. Tokyo was pretty much demolished by the great Kanto earthquake. Mm, the yeah. quake and fires killed over 100,000 people. 
And a lot of people in Taiwan may not know that Tokyo City was rebuilt in part by taking a lot of wood, massive timber reserves from Taiwan, as the Japanese had recently opened up forests. Uh, indeed, uh, the magnificent uh, Alisan Forest Railway uh, had been completed about a decade earlier. An amazing feat. So that goes up from J, not that much above sea level, to oh, 2,200 meters. So f- forget all the pomp and ceremony of royalty, the big events like uh, the expositions, all the crowds and formalities, you know, the engineering wonders, practical things such as the railways, the irrigation canals, waterworks. For me, these are the real showcases of uh, Japanese rule. Thanks for joining us on Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. You can contact us with the email formosafiles at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.